people don't tell their truth unless they're in a place where they can tell their truth. So what I'm really saying to the corporation is be a corporation that really is making a commitment to the fact that empathy is a superpower in a corporate setting. You will make money on this empathy program. Believe it. Believe in it. You will be a stronger and better corporation if your people feel honored and valued and understood. That's Sherry Turkle, six-time best-selling author, TED speaker, tenured MIT professor, and one of the most powerful voices on how to thrive in the digital age. Join us for this riveting conversation on her groundbreaking work on empathy, why your career and work must be lit from within, and what's at stake as advances in technology continue to disrupt how we work, communicate, and connect. Welcome to the Disrupted Workforce, simplifying today's massive disruptions to work, skills, purpose, and what it means to be human with honest conversation, actionable insight, and a sense of humor. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nate Thompson. And we are your humble hosts. Today, we welcome acclaimed author and MIT professor, Sherry Turkle. Sherry is the Abby Rockefeller Maze Professor of Social Studies of Science and Technology at MIT and the founding director of the MIT Initiative on Technology and Self. As a licensed clinical psychologist, she is the author of six books, including Alone Together and the New York Times bestseller, Reclaiming Conversation. Sherry is also a Miss Magazine Woman of the Year, a TED speaker, a regularly featured media commentator, and the recipient of Guggenheim and Rockefeller Humanities Fellowships. What a resume! Our focus today is to discuss Sherry's research on the importance and power of empathy at work and at home, and why most people are only getting it half right. Sherry's sixth book, The Empathy Diaries, a memoir, was released in 2021, and her article for Harvard Business Review is on the four empathy rules you need to know. She just wrote it in February of this year. But Sherry, before we dive in, we have to say that we are huge fans of your work. You were there leading this conversation, leading the tribe, all the, all the people like the Center for Humane Technology that are following Coded Bias, all those people are following your lead. And it has brought incredible insight, care, and concern for how technology is changing the way we live and work for over two decades now. Essentially, the ways in which technology is disrupting human behavior and the human experience. And you've done this from your seat at MIT, providing a voice of reason inside what many consider to be the institutional mecca for technology. And frankly, countering the commonly held perspective that tech and innovation are largely utopian for society. So Alex and I are inspired by you. We aspire to follow your lead with TDW and just help people have a balanced conversation about, yes, technology is incredible, but there also is a dark side and we need to focus on what makes us uniquely human as we upskill and reskill for this future of work. So Sherry, if this innovation isn't about making life better for human beings, then what the heck are we doing here and what's the point? We will get to all of that in a moment. 
We are so delighted and grateful to have you on the show. Well, I'm so pleased to be here. It's really a thrill. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's an incredible, incredible Love that introduction. I'm just gonna <laughs> I'm just gonna play it on those, you know those evenings when the writing isn't going so well. I'm just gonna play that. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. So let's talk for a moment about the critical importance empathy has to play in the workforce today. So first there is a white hot battle around mm -hmm. return to office versus work from home. Second, we've got burnout and mental health as enormous drivers for workplace dissatisfaction, the great resignation, and a core challenge for business leaders to manage. So here's a couple stats on how empathy fits in. In a survey of workers by global nonprofit Catalyst, they found that when people experienced empathy from their leaders, 86% reported that they are able to navigate the demands of their work and life, successfully juggling their personal, family, and work obligations. Similarly, the company Business Solver did a 2021 State of Workplace Empathy Study showing over 90% of employees reported that mental health benefits is one of the biggest results from demonstrations of empathy, and that only one in four employees felt that the empathy in their business organization was sufficient. So clearly empathy is going to be critical to both these leadership and wellness at work challenges. Now let's introduce this amazing article that you published in Harvard Business Review this past February, Empathy Rules. In it, you shine a new light on empathy, and I would venture that most people don't know or have any experience with these mm -hmm. empathy rules, and we absolutely love this quote from the article. What we know about empathy in the workplace is that it's a messy affair. It's both rewarding and time-consuming to listen to other people without preconception. Business consultants sometimes suggest that something that seems close enough, radical candor, a continual round robin of criticism and praise promises to dissolve the boundaries between colleagues. But this truth-telling practice proceeds from the feeling, I know you. Real empathy starts from a different premise, entirely radical humility. I don't know how you feel, but I'm here to listen. That's just amazing. Here is the Oxford Dictionary definition of empathy the ability to imagine and understand the thoughts, perspective, and emotions of another person. We know from your work you think that falls short of what empathy actually is and needs to be. So Sherry, what is missing here for individuals and organizations? Well, you know, those statistics on empathy as a kind of, you know, Wonder Woman power app for corporations are stunning. It shows how little, how little, how hungry people are yes. to be listened to, to be heard, to feel that there's some appreciation of them as human beings in the workplace. I mean, I listen to those statistics and instead of feeling good, they, they make me feel very sad. I mean, mm -hmm. people are basically saying, show me anything, you know, show me some care, show me some interest, and I'll, it's a superpower. Um, 
So I think that for corporations to realize how little they're doing and how little they're doing will lead to that kind of response. I mean, it's absolutely stunning. And, you know, I think really, um, you know, when I hear those statistics and I hear them a lot, you know, one, one reaction is, oh, empathy is our superpower. And the other reaction is people will, people will be so grateful for so little and let's give them more, Mm. you know? So of the empathy rules, I mean, I did, I did say four, and I want to just begin by fleshing out why that Oxford dictionary is, you know, um, doesn't say enough. Um, let me go back to the idea of embracing not knowing. Um, and maybe I could begin uh, with, uh, with giving a little bit of a critique of this idea of putting yourself in someone else's shoes, because I think it leads or it can lead to a kind of superficial business practice. Um, because as you were saying, too, em- too often empathy begins with, I know how you feel. You were divorced, I was divorced. You know, I know, I know. And it's kind of the natural stance because it's sort of our first way of being close. Mm. Um, and it takes a lot more discipline to say, I don't know how you feel, particularly in business. And a lot of the exercises for empathy that I've observed in business are quick. People want to get people in a room. People want to give them a training. And then people want to say, you've had some training. Yes. Um, And so they do things like sharing, back and forth sharing. They talk about active listening, where you do a lot of participatory active listening I hear you, let me say back to you what I've just heard. There's just a tremendous amount of, you tell me, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what you just said, I'll tell you what I just heard. And not a lot of shutting up and really being quiet and letting people express the complexity of how they're feeling, which often takes saying it three times, getting it wrong, Hmm. backtracking, contradicting yourself, making a mistake, saying, actually, no, that's not how I felt. Uh, We have to get better at this more complicated thing, which is disciplining ourselves to do not the active listening, but really the quiet listening, the disciplined listening. Because in active listening, people are trying to say the thing that the other person can relate to. And the important thing is often the thing that nobody's going to quickly relate to, but that will come out if you're quiet and just sit there and just let the person come around two or three times to the same story. And I think... um, I think it's making that distinction between what looks good on a sort of, I'm going to come in and do a workshop for you. And here's my, you know, workshop. It's a 360 thing. I got active listening. I got, you know, intimate sharing. And, you know, they, then they go into workout groups and they come into, you know, not workout groups and they go into breakout groups then they come back. That was a slip. Um, you know, um, 
and letting more time for just people to tell their life stories, to share something that's important to them, really to see the corporation that embraces empathy is the corporation that's not trying to do something quick, that's mm. trying to build this into the culture. So I think that's my most important critique of the corporate definition, the taking it out of Webster's, the quick website, is that what you're trying to do is not get a quick workshop together. You're trying to build a corporate culture that has a lot of things going on where people aren't feeling, well, this is my big chance to get my empathy thing in. And it's often more about people sitting quietly and being given that opportunity than having a lot of active listening going on. So that's a long answer to a short it's, it's the It's the right answer. Having been on the inside of organizational development, learning and development, human resources, innovation, most companies are pushing that efficiency lever. Yes. Can, can you do it faster? I mean, I'm being in meetings and saying, okay, we're going to talk about empathy today. And the response is, could you cut it in half? <laughs> could, you, <laughs> could you just chop it down? And, right, and, exactly. and it, people like us going, there's a paradigm problem here. You don't understand how empathy works. You don't cut to get to psychological safety. You don't cut to get to empathy. You have to give it the time to be messy, which is what I love so much about your work is you just say flat out, this is messy. You can't, there's no buttoned up version of this. Right. And it, it's almost better to just, you know, I think that the resistance, and this is really what I'm trying, you know, I, I, I want to just say this is what I'm working on now is trying to understand, you know, in an area where it's so clear we need to do something, this has to be an area where we say, let's accept that this is messy. Other parts of your corporation can be not messy. I'm not coming to mess up your whole, <laughs> I'm not coming to mess up your whole routine. But when it comes to this, this isn't friction free. Mm -hmm. This is messy. And when people tell their life stories, which is what empathy is going to entail, is people feeling safe and they they get it wrong. They they they, they have mixed feelings. They I thought you said you felt this way about I've been I've been in empathy workshops where somebody said to me, I thought you felt this way about your mother. Because in my book, The Empathy Diaries, I describe a mother who lied all the time. And I was so angry at her. She lied about who my father was. And I knew who my father was. So she was lying about, I was so angry at her, but I adored her. And I said in some workshop or in some book discussion group, how much I adored her. And somebody said, no, no, you, you hated her. for You hated her for making you lie all the time. And I looked at this woman and I said, yes, and yes. And that's what I want you to get out of my book, that to be empathic with me, I hated her so much. She took my father away and she made me lie about who he was. And I adored her because she did all that to try to protect me. Mm. And she was closer to me than anyone else in the world. Mm. So to, I told my story and told you all this so you would learn that empathy is sticky and messy and understand my story and you'll understand something about what it is. 
That has to happen in the corporation, of course, on a scaled down basis. But if somebody's going to say, no, you said the wrong thing, we got to get through this quickly. And I think you, you, you contradicted yourself. No. Yeah, or that old thinking of, hey, don't bring that. I don't need to know about your past and your right. uh, don't unfold all that in here. This is a business and we're about efficiency, you know. Right. Well, that's what I mean. I think there has to be a decision. I mean, if we're saying that empathy is a superpower in the corporate world, well, then let's let's do it. I don't think it's really something that's going to be uh, give a lot of value if it's done halfway. Right. Well, and I also hear you saying kind of between the lines, Sherry, that there are leaders and organizations who are going to grab this superpower and embrace it and do amazing things with it. And there are going to be plenty of companies and leaders who this is not even on the radar. Yeah. And I think that what's what's more likely to happen is a lot of people are going to grab it because it's trendy and they're going to do sort of something a little bit. And uh, as a therapist and a psychologist, I think you can do a lot of damage with mm -hmm. a little bit. Yeah. And I'll tell you the kind of damage you can do with a little bit. Um, there are very famous stories about psychoanalysts who were in supervision with Anna Freud. This is Freud's daughter. And she was very, very rigid about her theories of how psychoanalysis should get done. So rigid that hardly anybody could do psychoanalysis that way with children. So when people went in for supervision with Anna Freud, they made up a whole treatment so they could get certified by Anna Freud as analysts, because that's how you got certified as an analyst. Wow. So they would go in to this very prestigious place where she was training psychoanalysts, and no matter what they were doing with patients, they told Anna Freud the story that they wanted, she wanted to hear and got certified. And then they would go privately to the real, you know, to their real supervisors and tell another story. And I think that's kind of what's going to happen if you do sort of a half-baked job in your empathy training at work, that people are going to make up stories that are kind of empathy stories that are good for the corporate setting. Right. It's as though if I wrote my memoir, but I wrote it in a way that would be good for corporate, you know, would be good for the corporate setting. Sterilized. You know, kind of, <laughs> what's the word? Is it sterilized or is it sanitized? Sanitized, yeah, that's sanitized. what it is. <laughs> kind of, or that MIT would like. Yes. You know, help make a, my, my memoir says a lot of things about MIT. Oh, my God. You know, really, I tell it like... <laughs> I tell it like it is at MIT. But what about a memoir where I, I intimate that MIT was a little hard for women, but not too much because I want MIT to kind of like me. Right. There's and a people-pleasing element there. Mm -hmm. Yes, a people-pleasing memoir. And I think that in a corporation, you are so you don't want to lose your job. You know your job doesn't depend on how empathic you are. I mean, nobody's saying that. And so you come up with a version of yourself that's for your empathy training. And I think this can really do damage. And I think you're going to see a lot of that because when somebody's already saying, make the empathy training shorter, 
let's let's get it so that people are saying, particularly the stuff where I tell you something and you tell me back what you've heard. If you're doing that, I have to tell you something pretty simple for you to quickly tell me back what you've heard. Mm-hmm. It can't be that I love my mother, I hate my mother. I mean, it just better be, I hate my mother, you know? So you're not going to really get people feeling understood. You're going to get some other kind of mishmash. And as a psychologist, I think it's going to be potentially not what we want. Yeah. Just not what we want. So, so what I'm hearing from you is two things. One is how incumbent upon the person that is sharing to share with true radical vulnerability and have a willingness to be messy and not be so scripted. Yeah. And on the other side of that, that needs to be met with incredible patience. It's not just listening, it's patient listening. Yes, and it has to be, it has to be a place where that's honored. Yes. You know, that has to be a place where that's honored. I mean, I really came here because I, I felt that this was a place, this was a, I, I, I listened to others of your, you know, I mean, I know who you were and I felt this is a place where I can speak the truth of what I really think about my work. Uh, Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's, um, my God, I've been on programs where I really wouldn't share much because you're kind of jumped on. Mm. People are looking for a simpler story. It's just not the place. It's not appropriate. So the, the corporation has to make a commitment too. People don't, people don't tell their truth unless they're in a place where they can tell their truth. So what I'm really saying to, to the corporation is be a corporation that really is making a commitment to the fact that empathy is a superpower in a corporate setting. You will make money on this empathy program. Believe it. Believe in it. You will be a stronger and better corporation if your people feel honored and valued and understood. And make the space for it. Believe in what you're doing. Don't just take it as a slogan or a catchword. 100%. I love that. Since we've already covered Embrace Not Knowing, can we go to the other three? Can you walk us through Embrace Radical Difference, Embrace Commitment, and then Embrace Community? Yeah, well, let me just say something about radical difference. Um, Radical difference is very difficult because radical difference can really end up to being a commitment to diversity strategies that divide people. At MIT, uh, we're having a problem with free speech because diversity and difference um, turned out into people being frightened to have views on campus that weren't considered right thinking. So this respecting difference really, you know, it gets us into the thick of our political polarization. Mm. So then some people felt silenced. So radical difference really means respecting radical difference. It doesn't mean agreeing with radical difference. It doesn't mean liking radical difference. It doesn't mean approving of radical difference. 
but you have to have a very basic accept acceptance of human rights. But from there, you really have to leave space um, for people who disagree with you and let them express their views, given that they're not violent, given that they're not, you know, undermining people's, uh, you know, ability to express their individuality and their opinions. And that is very challenging. And so I think that um, uh, we really, we all need to step back and, and reassess this notion of radical difference because, uh, you know, we're at a point in this country where we can barely be in the room with people who are yes. different than we are. That's exactly what I was thinking is uh, it takes a very sophisticated person to hold space and create space for that kind of a conversation. Yes. The average Joe isn't going to be able to broker no. that conversation. And I think that even in the, and the reason I mention MIT is that even in places, you know, I don't want to hold MIT up as a, you know, <laughs> you know it's kind of a standard, but even in a place that's very sensitized, um, you'd think people, people when they are, are, are anxious around radical difference, they, they, radical difference is at a point, it makes us so anxious that we don't behave well around radical difference. And remember, things have gotten worse because what is the Facebook algorithm? Mm -hmm. The Facebook algorithm to keep us connected, to keep us hooked, is make me angry and then keep me with people who agree with me. Yes. Get me angry and then silo me with my own kind. And it's the anti-empathy machine and it's the anti-democratic machine. So empathy and democracy are extremely linked in my article and in my thinking because unless you can sit with someone who doesn't agree with you and respect their space, you know, the next step to being empathic is saying, look, I don't agree with you, but I, I get what you're thinking. I don't like it. I don't agree with it, but you have a right to vote. You know, I'm not saying I'm not, I'm not holding any brief for people who are saying, I don't, you know, I get what you're thinking. And so you can't vote. I mean, that I'm not counting those people, but if you are empathic with some, with somebody's history and you understand the deprivations of their family or how they come to their ideas about whatever, you say, you know, don't like it, don't agree with you, but you have a right to express yourself at the ballot box. Yep. Um, and rather than don't even talk to me about this shit. Mm -hmm. Yep. I hate it so much. You're destroying this country. I don't want to hear that. And I think that's what we're dealing with now. That we, we have to let people be heard and then we have to let them vote and then you know, we have to keep rinse and repeat. Yes. So then we've, we've have this difficult piece. It's time to embrace commitment. How does embrace commitment follow? Well, empathy for me isn't okay. That was good. I've had my <laughs> time. <laughs> is the, is the workshop over? <laughs> is, the workshop, is the workshop over? Did right. I do the workshop? Did I get my, you know, did I get my corporate kit? <laughs> I, 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 needed, I needed to do 
at MIT, every few uh, years I have to do a, you know, my, my, I won't do sexual violence to my students training. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, and if you don't get things right, they let you take the, they let you look back and take, take the little video again until you get it right. I mean, have I done, have I, have I answered the question right about what, what statute it is that I'm, you know, did I do this? I mean, it can't be a, um, something that you check off. Yeah. The person, the, the point of really listening to you is that if you really listen to, we're human beings and, you know, the mirror neurons in our body are firing when we see each other. You know, my body is responding to the way your face is moving. Mm -hmm. You know, when your eyebrow lifts and I'm, I'm, I have a neuron that's like doing something. So we care about the people we understand. This is, I mean, that's why I'm so anti-robot. I mean, this is a different conversation, but you know, I don't think robots should be our psychotherapists and our, 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 our deep companions because you know, we're responding to each other on a level that needs to really be respected. It's, a, it's, 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 it's not magic, but it's biomagic. And I, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. So when you come out of an empathic conversation, you don't want, you almost can't tolerate that person going, chow. I mean, that's not what you're, that's not the human connection at the end of one of these experiences the next stages are and i'll put them together are commitment and forming a community and that's what the corporation needs they need their employees to be committed to each other and committed to a community within the corporation so that there's a natural progression both in our political life and in our social life in the in, the, in, in our communities but certainly within the corporation, between true empathy leading to commitment to each other and community building within the corporation. And I don't think the Oxford, and this grows out of what true empathy is. Mm -hmm. And you have, you asked me a very interesting question in, the, in some of the questions you sent me. Um, you asked me to think about compassion I mean, I know I'm jumping ahead in my in my thinking, but one of the things compassion doesn't have is it doesn't particularly have room for all of this. I mean, you know, you can be compassionate, you know, tell me now about some people who were immigrating or, you know, some Ukrainian border yeah, or right. some Polish border or some camp or some. I mean, I'm immediately compassionate for the human plight. Right in the most abstract terms. But I don't feel that understanding, I don't feel that commitment that comes from that conversation, and I don't feel that sense of community that comes from that really deep personal experience. And I think people, when they try to confuse empathy and, and compassion, are almost undermining the power of empathy by trying to slide in compassion and saying, well, it's the same thing. But that's a, you'll ask me about that later, but it's, it came to mind. A great distinction. Yeah, the, the, you can't be some distant thing far away from us. Yes. The magic is in the bond of the sharing 
and yes. being present and yes. holding space for one another. So yes. beautiful, beautiful okay. distinction. Thank you. Absolutely. Sherry, a moment ago, you mentioned empathy and robots. And, uh, you know, one of the things we like to focus on here at TDW is skills that are uniquely human and somewhat future-proof from technology. Now, empathy should fit squarely in that category, and yet empathy and caregiving robots are on the rise for the elderly. There's the Moxie robot that was designed to help teach kids mindfulness and interpersonal skills. We've talked about these in a recent mini episode, Nate and I did, on your next colleague might be a robot. And in addition, there's the therapist chatbot Wobot. And in your book, uh, in the epilogue of the Empathy Diaries, you wrote, a virtual assistant or chatbot that offers friendship reduces a person to lines of code because that's all it knows how to do. But now technologists argue that to get the most out of such programs, we should treat them as the people they are pretending to be. However, if we put ourselves on the level of the machines we've created, we elevate them and diminish ourselves. We start to say that relationships between people and machines are interpersonal. There's no sense in that. And later on, you go to call this pretend empathy and ask, do we really want to feel empathy for machines that feel nothing for us? Talk to us about this. How is empathy a uniquely human superpower? And what happens when we give our machines empathy or allow them to provide empathy for us and loved ones? And I, I think the last question is, kind of related to that, are there use cases in which machines or programs can help us improve our empathy in the same way something like Duolingo can teach us a language? Are there use cases where technology is helpful? Well, let me answer the, um, the final question because this is, this is my favorite topic. I've been writing about this for 20 years. I mean, ever since sociable robots came on the scene, I've been on this because I saw it coming. I knew the first people who were working on it. I, I brought the first sociable robots into nursing homes. I, I've, been, I've, been on, I've been on this from the start. And uh, the robots have gotten better and better. They can um, fool us into thinking they care about us more and more. They can, pass the, they can pass the Turing test? They passed the Turing test for empathy. In other words, the Turing test was a test of, could the test say make you think it was intelligent? It took a long time for machines to really make you think that they were people. And you couldn't tell if they were, he said, if a machine can make you think it's a person, that, that will be the sign it's intelligent. It's a, it was a behavioral test for intelligence. And it took a long time for machines to be able to have fluency of speech uh, on any topic. Even now, you can kind of fool one and screw one up and, and it guts off the track. But basically, machines finally passed the Turing test for intelligence. And it's much easier, actually, to have a machine that can fool you into thinking it cares about you. Mm. And they absolutely can now. So, I mean, I give them, you know, the, the, there's, no, um, there's no discussion. The question is, 
what has been accomplished and is it good for people? Yep. If a if an eight year old girl thinks that a robot loves her, yes, and tells her secrets to this robot, and I had a uh, I was interviewing a girl and her mother, and the mother was so happy that the little girl was telling her secrets to the robot. And the mother said, you know, she she feels free because she feels that nobody will, you know, the robot is a safe place for her. There's never any feeling of, you know, that there'll be a, you know, that there'll be any pushback or she'll be challenged or it's just mm -hmm. a kind of, she's venting. Right. And I said to the mother, I said, you know, um, what makes your daughter feel loved when she tells you these things and you say, but honey, let me just stop you there and, 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 and say this to you about that, is that she's learning how to form a human relationship, which is much more important than venting. Who, who said that the most important thing for the development of a human spirit and a human psyche is that we should feel free to vent? This, this is an idea that a roboticist thought was a good idea. And some, psycho some, some superficial psychologist said that and some roboticist said, oh, I love that idea because my robot can do it. Right. But that's mm -hmm. not a sophisticated psychological idea is that what I need to do is vent and that's going to be that's going to be helpful to me. That's not what a therapeutic relationship is about is me venting. What a therapeutic relationship is about is forming a relationship with another human being who understands the complexity of life. I said to this mom, you know, give yourself credit for what you bring your daughter. You don't bring her venting. You bring her a human relationship. You are your empathy and your understanding and your complexity of this love. This, this is what is going to heal your child. And the mother was like, she had like forgotten what it was the most important thing about it, what it is to be a mother. Mm. And I, I tell this story, I mean, not because it's one out of a hundred. But I, I tell this story because I think there's something about the bells and whistles and the amazingness of this Wobot or all the other things we have that are pretending to care about us that makes us forget what we can give each other and what they can never give us, which is the complexity and the history of being a person and listening to our stories and having empathy and and being in a connection with us that's the connection and the complexity of another human being listening to the complexity of another human being. When I told that story about Anna Freud, I don't think that either of you two know that much about Anna Freud, but I was describing lying to a supervisor, a famous psychoanalyst, a Freud's daughter, and I knew that you understood what it would be like to make up a whole story to your supervisor 
all the power dynamics in that, how you would and how, my God, I'm lying to my supervisor, but I need to do this. I don't want to lose my job. Then finding somebody else to really tell your story to. The reason you understood that is because you were human beings yes. who've gone to work, who've, who've been tempted to lie to your supervisors. <laughs> oh, it's the corporate mask. It's we've, exactly. we've been socialized. Nate lies to me all the time, <laughs> exactly. Sherry, all I mean, the When time. I told that story, I was 100% sure that two human beings would understand yes. what I was talking about. Yes. I have no confidence that a robot who's never had a boss, who's never been afraid of being fired. I mean, it, it's all, it's, I've never been afraid of not being able to feed his family or pay his rent or pay his bills or, you know, would, would care about that story. I mean, there are just some things about being a person that make us care about the important stories we have to tell. So I am not down, not down with pretend empathy, not down with it for children, not down with it for grownups. Um, just, I don't want to go on longer than you want me to go on about this, but this is something that I could talk about like at length. It's not a good, this is not a good direction of all the things that robots could do. This is the one where we should just say so many other good things for robots to do. I'm not anti-robot, but this is not a good direction. So That's keep an them, unbelievable answer. Yeah. Keep them on the mundane. Keep stripping the mundane out of the workforce. Keep them using them for automation and to yeah, remove. Like so many great things for robots to do. I mean, I. It's clearly they're a miracle. I mean, let's let's go to all those other places. Why why psychotherapy? Right. Why companionship for the elder? I mean, it's it's. And also it makes people feel good. Like, you know, oh, well, the, the elderly don't need companions. There's no people for those jobs. Of course there are no people for those jobs. You, they, they get paid less than $15 an hour and they have no health care. That's why there are no people for those jobs. I mean- well, I, I think it also, it sells out our responsibility to do it for the yes. elderly. Yes. Let me tell you, when I, I mean, I'm not elderly, elderly yet, but I'm, I'm not a young, I mean, if you, if you give me, I tell my daughter, if you give me a robot, you know, shame on you, you know, I will listen to Jane Austen tapes. I mean, there are so many respectful, <laughs> there are so many respectful ways to keep me occupied, you know, you can just have me watching Pride and Prejudice on a steady loop. There is no harm in that. But I mean, much, I mean if, if you're not going to call grandma on the weekends, at least get her a dog. Don't get her a robot. I mean, give, I mean, I mean it is so ridiculous to give me. I mean, just think of me having a robot saying, I love you, Sherry. I mean, oh, I mean, it's just it, it's just it's so you know, and it, I, I, I don't want to take too much time on this, but I mean, as you see, this is the thing I love to hate. Um, it's, uh, symptoms are things we love to hate. And some people have said, this is my symptom because it is the thing I love to hate. So I do get a little nutty. Um, during, during, the, during the pandemic, a New York Times reporter called me to make a comment about Replica, which was one of the big robot psychotherapists that became very popular during the, during the pandemic. So I had a therapy session with Replica and I said, can you talk about loneliness? I'm very lonely. 
And she said, yes. I mean, I, I made a she avatar. So the avatar said, yes, I can. So I said, well, what can you tell me about loneliness? It's really my main problem during this terrible time. And she it said, it's warm and fuzzy. So it was a glitch in the program. I mean, I'm sure it never made such a stupid mistake again. I took a screenshot. I sent it to the New York Times. And I thought to myself, well, why should this program know about loneliness? Right. I mean, you know, it's not worried like I am about catching COVID, being intubated, saying goodbye to my daughter on a, some screen. I mean, these were the early days when everything was the most terrifying. I mean, no. the things that I was worried about, my body dying, you know, that this was somehow the end out of nowhere. This was the end. How could this robot, no matter how brilliant it was, no matter how fabulous it was, identify with what I was thinking about, about being intubated and saying goodbye to my daughter on the screen? I mean, it, I mean, it, 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 it didn't have a body. It didn't have a daughter. It, it, it had wasn't its fault. It doesn't mean I'm anti-robot. Hmm. So, no. No, 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 no. Thank you. Love everything about that, and I want to grab it and carry it right into what's going on with this situation that's unfolding. People need a lot of empathy. We just went through this pandemic. It's sort of pseudo over because it's still with us. It will always be with us. We'll probably continue to get vaccines or whatever. Now, 50 million people voluntarily resigned in 2021. That trend has only continued in 2022, in some cases hitting record resignations, voluntary resignations. And there's this battle where leaders are trying to go back to the traditional and sort of baiting, incentivizing, shaming, forcing. Um, there's very public battles going on with open letters to the leadership of organizations at companies like Apple that pay very, very generous salaries. There's, a, there's an unrest that's brewing here. And I wanted to ask you about one-on-one -on -one empathy is one thing, where you and I sit and the magic is in the bond and we have this beautiful conversation and something happens that wasn't there before. But when you look at it, you pull back on this macro level, there's this hurt and this, you don't understand me and you don't care. So now we're writing open letters to the media to say, don't try to force me, don't shame me, don't cut my pay, and don't treat me like an object for just being a human being. I just want to be a human being. So as this thing's playing out, is there something like macro empathy or a way for us to sort of understand this human experience and what people are going through? You know, that's such a great question. I don't think there's macro empathy. I think there's empathy for another person that helps you to understand the behavior of many. Hmm. And I think it's better to think of it that way. So we don't start lumping people and getting into narratives of, you know, mistaking. First, we thought it was the, for the resignation and then it's not a resignation. It's people wanted to have different jobs. I mean, we, I think it's better to think of empathy as something that you do one by one. Because in my work, I go deeply into someone's story, and then I go deeply into another person's story. I build up many narratives, 
I can call upon many narratives, hundreds of narratives and thousands of narratives. And I think that understanding many narratives about the resignation has helped me to understand that people really aren't looking to drop out. They were really looking to be in a better place. Mm. And I think that you get that understanding by taking people's stories narrative by narrative. And as you were saying, people were saying, look at my job. I was traveling two hours there, two hours back. When it was a rush, it was three hours. I was being asked to come in. I didn't even have a mask to wear. And then I was being asked to work in an unsafe situation. Now that I have a choice, I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm terrified. Mm. Now, why should that person be shamed or humiliated or made to feel like a quitter or a loser or a there at the end of their, you know, they, they didn't see their family. I mean, I'm just, I'm just taking, you know, kind of, yeah. you know, they're saying, my God, can I really find a job where I can maybe work from home for a couple of years? Is that like a possibility for me? So I can see my children. Education has gotten much worse. The schools have deteriorated. Only a very few parents, very few lucky parents can count on sending their children back to a school that's kind of the way it was when they left it. Mm -hmm. Most public schools are in desperate straits. Desperate. So parents who, who can stay home and, 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 and support their children's learning and work from home, they they shouldn't be shamed or be made to feel like quitters or i mean i think we need to understand what's happening in this country is really a breakdown of many of our systems of many of the things that we relied on but actually they were operating on a very very thin edge mm. and we have to consider ourselves as part of a community and in the middle of everything we're cutting taxes <laughs> you know, we're cutting taxes. We're taking away resources. The government wants to, you know, support these things. They're saying, no, no more. The pandemic's over. It's time to take away all the resources. I mean, we really don't support the social services and the infrastructure for parents and families and, and, and women and the disabled in any way that's really meaningful. Right. That's enough. And, and so when there was a disruption, people really kind of couldn't do it. My life isn't held together with, with duct tape and string. And even I felt the stress. But many people's lives are held together with duct tape and string. And so now you're seeing people saying, well, okay, well, maybe I can just, can I earn a living from home? And I think those those voices need to be listened to, and and the and government, the state, I mean state, local, city, everybody has to rethink. Well, what can we really do as a society so everybody isn't feeling as though their life is being held together on duct tape and string? So I'm hearing you say, uh, in the organization, we have to listen to the stories of the people to understand yes. what's going on for the people. Yes. 
but at yes. a much larger level, a, a regional level, a state level, a national level, a global level, we, we're seeing formerly stable structures start to break down. Well, we're seeing that the structures were not stable. We're seeing the instability. Mm -hmm. We're seeing that it was a smoke and there was a lot of smoke and mirrors and human suffering. Mm -hmm. It made that work. I guess that's what I'm saying. And then for us to function as a community, we have to listen to those stories. Empathy will be the start of our building back those communities. Build, to build new structures that actually are in service to the people. Yes, that are, in the, that are in the service of us all. That's why I think that empathy is, is really the, 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 a stepping stone, a, a cornerstone to democracy. Because if we understand as well as corporate health, because if we really understand these stories, we will not be amazed. We will not be, what, what could be happening? Why are people doing this? We will understand what's going on. And we will be able to, you know, give the kind of flexible work situations and we'll, we'll be able to build, we'll be able to be more flexible because we'll be able to explain to workers why it's in their interest to come to work. And this is something I really want to say to the generations, if there are older generations listening to this, is that your younger workers don't understand how important it is to come to work. You need to teach older workers and corporate leaders have to find a language for teaching younger generations in a not in a condescending way or not in a threatening way, why it is so important to come to work, why it is important to make those networks, why it's important to have lunch with the boss, the manager, the medium boss, the not so big boss, the person at your level, why you need to come to work why you need to have to build these networks, have these associations, and why it's so much more important, or I don't want to say so much more important, by why, why it's so important for younger workers to do this. And you have to understand that young workers don't understand that. Because from their point of view, they have their book of work, they have their book of business, they've made all their calls, they've made some sales, they're, they've met their goals. I'm working from home. Yep. They can't see what a career means in terms of the net. And networking sounds like such a terrible word. I mean, it sounds careerist and it just sounds like all the word. It sounds like all the words you don't want to use. So we have to find some better word than you need to network. They need to build the, the connections, the friendships, the yeah. in-person. What? In-person connections. In-person, they need to be with the people who are gonna accompany them on the journey of their careers. Yes. Or they're, it's gonna be a very lonely world and it's not gonna be a successful world. And it's not what, what we're talking about is the fact that younger generations, in, in your view, are looking at sort of these um, 
bottom line key performance indicators as yeah. metric for which they're understanding the impact and effectiveness of their work. Yes. But they are unable to see the bigger picture of all the nuance uh, in a career in the same way that a robot is unable to see <laughs> the complexity in a human life, right? Yes. Um, yes. What That's I love great. so much about your, your answer is you really, in your work, Nate and I have both remarked in preparing to talk to you how wild it is and how powerful it is that you've been able to identify these big shifts before they've happened in insofar as being able to understand what's at stake. So in Alone Together, it was dispelling the illusion that technology had made us actually closer than ever and that digital connection actually had made us more lonely and isolated than ever. In reclaiming conversation, it was the importance of face-to-face -face conversation. And what I think you just outlined in a lot of ways, Sherry, is what's at stake when we lose empathy. Uh, going all the way to, uh, at the, the most extreme, our very democracy, and in the microcosm of work, the conversation between um, older generations and younger generations, and how do you bridge that gap of understanding? And I want to take a moment to, to pivot and return to your work in Reclaiming Conversation, because in that book you write, among family and friends, among colleagues and lovers, we turn to our phones instead of each other. We readily admit we would rather send an electronic message or mail than commit to face-to-face -face meeting or a telephone call. And I want to bring that up because how you structure this conversation between an older generation and a younger generation at work, or how you structure any conversation and help people to understand when do you talk versus when do you text, I think is very hard to know. And I'd love to get your specific thoughts on that because in order to have these important conversations. They need to happen face-to-face. -face. That's a great question. One thing that comes to mind is that you need experience. You don't need rules. You need experience. Mm -hmm. And I was very struck when I was doing the research for Reclaiming Conversation that I met a student who said, I, I go by the rule of three. And the rule of three is that if she's in a conversation and let's say at a dinner table in, in a dorm, and three people are looking up. Let's say there are six people in the meet at, at the at dinner, and three people are looking up, but three people are looking down at their phones. She feels she can look down at her phone because three people are are still kind of carrying along the conversation. So she felt it. She felt it was okay to look down. And I found that rule of three was used all over. It was used in business wow. meetings. It was used in corporate boardrooms. I mean, once she articulated it, hmm. I found it all over. People don't, we didn't always have a word for it. But in my mind, this woman was like famous. I tried to make her famous because I talked so much about this rule of three. But what this rule of three doesn't take into account, and this is how I'm going to try to answer your question when I'm talking about you need experience and not a rule, is that 
what kind of conversations happen when three people are looking down and three people are looking up? Bullshit conversations. Yeah. Conversations that can be interrupted at any minute when somebody else puts down their phone and somebody else looks up and somebody else puts down their phone and somebody else looks up. So the reason that your question is a good question but the wrong question is that when we allow ourselves to say, well, for certain conversations, I'll use my phone. For other conversations, I'll do it in person, is that we change the nature of the conversation by whether or not we're going to use the phone or be there in person. So if, if I say to you, you know, I've enjoyed this I've enjoyed this conversation. You know, we should set up a series of three things. I can bring my students. Da, 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 da. I see some ways we can, you know, really make it work in a different way. Uh, when we get together, when we're, you know, we'll, we'll organize to get together when we're in the same city together and we'll have lunch, come over to my house. We'll, you know, we'll really, I'll bring my students. You bring. We will totally change the nature of our, I mean, a TV special will come out of that meeting. Because we will yep. be together for a couple of hours. We'll have food. We'll talk. The ideas will happen. My students will get excited. But we'll just, I mean, it will be amazing. If I make the same comments, say, this was great. Let's set up a Zoom for three weeks from now. I'll, 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 send, you a power, I'll send you a deck. And I, I think we could do some, you know, some, some, something that we could sell and do kind of like a book or something. You know, it'll be cut and dry. Mm-hmm. So by the very nature of how we set up the conversation, the business conversation, we're going to change the nature of even the business conversation. So I'm very hesitant for human beings to make rules about when they should talk and when they should text. Because sometimes I think if they talked, they would fall in love. And I don't want, you know, so, so empathy rules, yes. Conversational rules, no. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't want to be, I'm, I am a romantic. I mean, I just believe that you change, that, 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 that how you meet is go just as, I mean, of course, you know, if you know this meeting, you know you want this meeting to be 20 minutes, you have an agenda. I mean, I'm not, I live in the real world. I'm meeting with my graduate student. I'm trying to settle you know, when, when is her thesis defense? Did she, does she have the stuff done or their extra book she needs to put on her, she needs to put on her reading list. I'm happy to go put, to get on zoom. I mean, I'm not like some kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, 18th century figure, you know, you know, kind of wending my way through the halls of academe. But I know that if I meet with a student in person, something new can happen mm -hmm. that isn't necessarily going to happen if it's a zoom call even the way you described it you know come and meet me let's talk in person let's eat together you know that is opening up a world of invitation and connection and vulnerability that just oh book a 30-minute zoom and let's see if we can hammer through this yeah that's just a totally different the point is what what do we want from each other yeah. in other words if i want to start and I, a new idea with you, if I want us to be involved in a project that has new ideas, 
I'm, I'm thinking, well, how can I set up a, a situation that will maximize new ideas? So a boss, a leader of an organization, in the back of his mind, he's thinking, okay, I want to meet with this manager. What do I want from this woman or man? I, sometimes I just want to know his name, her name, rank, serial number, because I'm thinking I want to put them in a slot and, you know, get a job done. And I think they're the right person, boom, boom, boom. But sometimes I'm thinking, you know, I, I think I can do something here and, and change this person's whole trajectory and do something great for my company. But I, I need to really get the measure of this woman. Mm. I, I better create space for that. So, of course, they can do it on a Zoom call. But then what are they, are they going to trust? Are they going to trust what they feel? So I, I think that instead of our making rules about when we have Zoom calls and when we have, I, I don't think this is something where we should come in with, yeah, empathy rules. But I think we should leave a lot of fluidity in how we use our media. We have a lot of, we have a lot of media. Sometimes when I, I tell you, I like to have office hours with my students on the phone. I just like to just close my eyes, listen to their voices, just concentrate on their voices and the sort of intimacy of hearing their voices, not looking at their backgrounds and everybody trying to look at the green light to look like they're looking at my eyes and just listen to their voices, concentrate on the, you know. I mean, I think we just need to do what works for us. Mm. Sometimes a phone call is such a welcome break from Zoom, I have yeah. to say. Yeah. yeah. Quiet, <laughs> intimate. I think it's underutilized. So I actually have office hours on the phone. I mean, I'm teaching on Zoom all day, and then I just say my office hours are on the phone. And people say, oh, really? Oh my God, that's so nice. You'll, you'd actually spend an hour on the phone with me? <laughs> I said, yeah, I'd actually spend an hour on the phone with you. That's so. great. Okay, one, this one I'm, I'm dying to ask you. Okay. Okay, so zooming out on your career, and I personally am very connected to this because a lot of the work I've done in corporations over the last 20 years is change work. And, and there's this, you've described yourself as a killjoy, a bit of an outsider, right? <laughs> I had my teeth here. <laughs> yeah, and you're just, you've, you've led this work that in many ways is not popular. You're nonconformist. You're sort of the person in standing in the middle of the square going, hey, there's a shadowy side to this, everyone. Pay attention over here. And so that's hard. That's really hard work, in, especially in a time when innovation is sort of, the holy grail, everybody's racing toward this thing. So what would you say to people who want to protect this human experience and they want to nurture people and be human first and, and, and speak up about, hey, some of these prevailing beliefs may not be the best thing. How does a person navigate those choppy, hard, stormy waters? Well, I mean, I think there are some very basic things. First of all, don't be upset if you're not invited to all the parties. You know, I mean, don't, you know, you can't be, you know, you can't, you have to be the kind of person who is, is that's what I tried in Empathy Diaries to show that at a certain point, my work became lit from within. I mean, I was going to do this work. It was not my job. 
I tried to explain how somebody well, lit from within. Mm-hmm. Um, so make sure this is your career, not your job, that it really means a lot to you. Um, and then try to find friendships, uh, colleagues um, who will say to you, keep at it. I believe in you. Uh, in the Empathy Diaries, I describe an ex-husband who was profoundly unfaithful. We had to get divorced. He was not a good, he was not a good husband. <laughs> but he, um, he believed in my work. And uh, 100% credits to him because, um, you know, he was not a good husband, but he said, you know, I think you're on to something. Mm. I think you're on to something. I like the idea of evocative objects. I like the idea of computer culture. I mean, nobody ever said these things. You know, I like the idea of computer as Rorschach. I like the idea of people having different styles of using computation. I like the idea that people are thinking about their minds by thinking about computers. People were not like giving me like awards for thinking about these things. <laughs> people were saying the computer is a tool, you're crazy. And he said, you know, I, I'm a smart guy and I think these are good ideas. And it, it, it sustained me. So find mm. people, find, um, uh, you know, it's funny when I was writing the book and I got to writing about him, and I'm, I was honest, I wrote about the infidelity and why the marriage had to end and how sad I was. And, but yeah. I also tried to give him credit. You know, I also tried to be honest that, you know, life is complicated and sometimes the people who hurt you and, are not good for you in certain roles, play a role in your life that, that's so helpful. Yeah. Um, find people who will sustain you. Um, but like, don't expect that you're gonna be, you know, there were many, many years where I, I had some tears, I wanted to be, and I got fired at MIT before they rehired me. There's a chapter in the Empathy Diaries where I describe being fired and I went, to the president and I said, well, why are you firing me? I've written three books. I, I really, I really, I really have done a good job here. And they rehired me. I mean, I didn't sue or anything like that, but I, I got rehired. But I you did. had to fight for it. Yes, I did. I did. And I'm not really like a very litigious person, but I really said, cause I know this is not right. You know, I did stand up for myself. So be prepared to fight for your ideas, too. Um, you know, um, and people say, oh, the tide is turning. Uh, Tristan, you, da-da-da-da. Excuse me, the metaverse? We're going to the metaverse? The tide yeah. is not turning so much. <laughs> yeah, but, I, mean, I know. God help us. The metaverse? If, 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 if we're still talking about the metaverse, the tide has not changed and all of these netflix specials and all of my woman of the year and all that it hasn't changed enough if we're still going to the metaverse so we need all the all the young scholars need to be getting on this i love how you said that there's there's a tremendous amount of energy that's lifting up your work and echoing everything you said but Given some of oh, the we're recent, we're going to the metaverse. <laughs> yeah, 
there's still some uh, uh, some off course navigation here going on. <laughs> I'm so glad that you're also sharing with our audience, you know, more of the stories that you put in the Empathy Diaries because I really want everybody that listens to this podcast to to grab a copy and read it. It is so beautifully written. Um, and it's your your most personal book yet. Um, you know, you candidly and vulnerably share this search for truth in a family of secrets as a core driver in your life. And then you talk about the importance of truth as a core value. And I've been sober for 15 years, and I, I share that openly. And one of the core tenets of recovery is the saying that you're only as sick as your secrets, right? Mm -hmm. So talk to us, Sherry. Talk to us about the power of truth and your journey to being able to be so vulnerable in this memoir. Well, my mother had me lie about my name. She didn't want anyone to know that she had been um, married and divorced to my father before she remarried a man named Turkle. And my name was Sherry Zimmerman. And I, I couldn't have that name. Uh, Milton Turkle ultimately adopted me, but that wasn't until I was a teenager. So for years, my name was Sherry Zimmerman. Right. And I, nobody could know, not anybody, wow. not my sister, my sister and brother, not people in our neighborhood. Not, I mean, so at school, I had to write my name, Sherry Zimmerman, because it was my legal name. But then I had to come home and lock up my papers. And uh, my life was a lie. My name was a lie. I, I was our whole family construct was a lie. And um, I just became fascinated about empathy, not because empathy was shown towards me, but because I tried to understand why these people who loved me would do that to me. I tried to understand why they would do it to me. So it wasn't like I was shown a lot of empathy, so I flourished, and then I wanted to understand empathy as this powerful, wonderful thing. I wasn't shown empathy, and I wanted to understand why these people who so clearly loved me would put me through that. And that was the origin of my interest in empathy, and that was the uh, my interest in truth and my passion for truth. And... Uh, the origin really of writing this book because I realized that my life's work and my life were so closely enmeshed. And the book is really my journey towards uh, putting that all together. Hmm. And that is the light from the inside. That you spoke of, that's the light from the inside. That's the, Yes, it's the, it's like passion. I said, my work is lit from within, it is. And I wish for everyone that they find work like that. It shouldn't be like mine, you know, being lies and secrets. But I try with my students to find work for them that has that everybody has something. And they should try to find work that is really work that's lit from within. I think uh, it's, a, it's a reason to do memoir. It's a reason to write a memoir because it... it um, 
it helps you find what will be lit from within in your own life, in your own work. You you have me thinking of the Rumi quote, the wound is where the light enters you. Yes, yes, that's a beautiful quote. Before we close, I just want to leave our audience with one final quote from the Empathy Diaries. You write, to fix our crisis of intimacy and privacy, of empathy and human connection, we don't need more apps. We need one another. We are the Empathy app. And that is so well written, so well said. Um, Thank you, thank you, thank you for pioneering this vital work for continuing to stand for what matters most. You inspire us so much. We are grateful to have you on the show to share your wisdom with our audience and to be on this shared journey of helping people to prepare for the future of work. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today. In a world where attention is scarce and content is abundant, it means a lot. If you like what you heard, please be sure to give us a rating. Five-star reviews are, of course, acceptable, and please also share this with your people at work and at home. The Disrupted Workforce was created to address the transformational change that's already begun and to help individuals and organizations grow in these dynamic times. We are excited to be on this journey with you, and we are here to help. See you next episode.